One of the best things you can do when you first start learning to cook is to look up common spices in the recipes of different cuisines. For example, knowing that you can make taco meat without a seasoning packet as long as you've got chili powder, garlic and onion powder, and cumin goes a long way toward making someone a good cook and not just someone who can follow a recipe. To learn even more secrets about spices, we invited a guy who has maybe the coolest job ever to come by the studio this week. His name is Ethan Frisch. He's a former chef and the founder of single-origin spice company Burlap and Barrel, for which he travels around the world, meeting spice farmers and bringing their products to market so that they make real money and you get fresher, more unique spices. Speaking of money, you might want to save some up for one of the cars in Popular Mechanics' 2018 Car Awards. This week, we called up automotive editor Ezra Dyer down in North Carolina to get the lowdown on his favorites this year, and also to hear the story of the time he recently let a Lamborghini run out of gas, which he called the saddest sound in the world. Also on this episode, technology editor Alex George teaches us how to block robocalls and crazy exes, Roy talks stubby screwdrivers, and Peter Martin has a tough time learning to stir a cocktail properly. Maybe we should tie him to that chair again. We hope you all are enjoying our podcast and would, of course, love to hear from you. If you have any comments on today's episode or even just want to say hey, tweet at us at M-U-P-E Podcast on Twitter or check us out on Instagram, also at M-U-P-E Podcast. For now, I'm your host, Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to the most useful podcast ever. So we have a very special guest for this week's episode. It's Ethan Frisch of Burlap and Barrel. Welcome to our podcast studio. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So you have the coolest job, I think, that I have ever heard about. Matt Allen, who is also here, profiled you in our recent life section in the magazine, which is a place where we look at people with cool jobs or cool lives. So what do you do? <laughs> Can you explain it? It's the coolest job I've ever had, too. I have a direct trade spice company, which practically day to day means I work with spice farmers all around the world and as much as possible get to visit and spend time with spice farmers all around the world. So the profile that was in this most recent issue of Popular Mechanics We went to Zanzibar, Tanzania. Zanzibar is an archipelago off the coast of Tanzania in East Africa. And we spent some time with a co-op there that grows cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, vanilla, black pepper, all kinds of stuff. That sounds amazing. It sounds like it smells good. It smells great. My whole life smells. I just like I think I think I walk through the city in a cloud of like cardamom aroma you're like, or what something. What perfume is that? <laughs> yeah, right, and you're like, exactly. it's, a, it's my life actually. Right. Well, that's an amazing gig. You just came in here. You brought Matt these chili peppers. What are these? Yeah. So I, I just got back from Guatemala a couple of weeks ago. I've been working with a cardamom farmer there for just over a year, and he's started growing some other things that he knew that I was interested in, including this very particular variety of chili pepper, which is called a cobanero chili. They're called cobanero narrow chilies because they're from Coban, and that's the only place in the world where this variety of chili grows, and it's supposedly an ancient Maya chili variety. They're spicy, but what's really nice about these chilies is it's a really interesting kind of balanced flavor. There's some sweetness, some like fruity notes. I get like papaya and, and other things like that, but there's this heat that builds, but they also have like a cool sort of smoky muskiness. There's a traditional dish in that part of Guatemala where they toast the chilies and grind them, cook them with water, and then braise pork or beef or something else in a broth of just toasted cobanero chilies. And it's incredibly spicy and just like incredibly addictive. You can't stop eating it. So how did you get into this? Like, how does a person get this job? I don't know is the short answer. And the long answer is I had been a chef. I was a pastry chef and a line cook at various restaurants around New York and in London, and then went to grad school for international development to work in particularly in conflict zones. And from there, moved to Afghanistan and lived there for a couple of years, working for a big nonprofit, and then to the Middle East, where I worked for Doctors Without Borders on the Syrian-Jordanian border. And I had been looking for a long time for a way to combine my two very different sets of 
experiences and something with food, something with a social impact, something that would give me an excuse to travel and hang out in very remote rural areas of countries all around the world. I wanted to do something that really like put me on the ground and had a steep learning curve. I love situations where I have no idea what's going on. I have to figure it out. So showing up on an island off the coast of Tanzania and having to understand how cinnamon cultivation works. Wow. What if somebody doesn't know anything about spices? When buying spices, what are you looking for? How do you know if they're old? I'm sure it depends by spice. How do you know where a spice should come from? For the most part, consumers don't think about where spices come from. We don't think about spices as agricultural products, which which obviously they are. Uh, They're fruits, they're seeds, they're pieces of tree bark. And agricultural products come from farms and farmers. And there's a diversity of flavor. You get a crappy, red, delicious apple that's covered in wax and sitting in the grocery store is not going to taste as good as a fresh apple from a local orchard. So likewise, the same is true for spices, finding farmers who know what they're doing and then using their spices totally indiscriminately. My whole philosophy around cooking with spices is to avoid recipes as much as possible and particularly to avoid recipes that call for specific spices connected with specific dishes or cuisines. You know, like if you like making pasta sauce, throw cardamom in your pasta sauce and see what happens. And it's going to be great. It's going to make it great. It's going to give it this sort of like minty freshness that will make it taste unlike any other pasta sauce you've ever eaten. How do you look for spices? Do you just go to a place and go for it? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, sometimes the first trips, for sure, that's what I was doing. Subsequent trips have been a little bit more organized. I work either with a local NGO, a nonprofit, or a local ministry of agriculture, somebody who has a presence in the country who gets to know which farmers might be interested in what I'm proposing, because what I'm proposing to the farmer is is also pretty radical. They're going to be the direct exporter, which which in most cases they have never done before. So as much as finding a really high quality variety of chili pepper, I also have to find a farmer who's ready to step up and say, all right, I'm going to try something a little different. Right. What spices do you sell the most of? Are are people most excited about? Oh, yeah. You know, the funny thing I've learned since getting into this is that it's very seasonal. We sell almost no cinnamon in the spring, and then we sell a ton of cinnamon in the fall. Well, which is not sure. surprising. <laughs> but the thing with spices is that they're seasonal. We don't necessarily know when the pepper season is in Zanzibar, or most consumers don't. But finding out what the freshest product is is always a good way to shop for spices. Researching where they come from. If you're buying spices, it should say on, on the jar or on the package. Definitely the country of origin, if not a specific region. And learning a little bit about what that region's techniques might be in growing, what might be unique about that variety of cinnamon or that variety of turmeric or whatever spice you're buying. A lot of the complexity that we're trying to introduce into the consumer's experience of spices is that things like the age of the plant, the age of the bark for cinnamon matters. Older bark has a different flavor from younger bark. Or with cardamom in particular, yellow cardamom, which is a vine-ripened cardamom, where the industry standard is a green cardamom, which is picked a little bit underripe. And they're both great. They have very different uses and flavors, but we should understand that there are options. There's diversity within something that we just think about as a very homogenous. Cardamom is all one thing, but actually you can pick it at different times. It comes from different places, a different farmer might have a particular technique of growing it or harvesting it or drying it that makes a difference in the flavor. What are your favorite spices? Oh, that's like asking what are my favorite... Children? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I don't know any children, but yes, theoretically. I have a really strong attachment to the cumin, which is a wild variety of cumin that grows in the mountains of Afghanistan, where I lived for several years and was the first spice that I really figured out how to import. I spent a lot of time in that province when I was living there, and I have a friend who is from that province, and he and his cousin kind of collect it from shepherds who harvest it out 
out in the mountains and schlep it down through this crazy Soviet-era network of tunnels through the mountains from Badakhshan, this province in the northeast, down to Kabul, and then ship it to me in New York. I just want to jump in and say the cumin, if you make chili, if you like chili, like this is the perfect cumin to actually like taste cumin in your chili. You always throw it in. You're never quite sure what it does, but this actually will add a bit of the actual like cumin flavor. None of the armpit you sort of associate with bad cumin, and then a little extra like spice and pine on top of it. Oh, wow. This is a different species of cumin, actually. It's more closely related to caraway seeds than standard cumin. And so you get some of the herbal pine notes of caraway. It's like the perfect cumin. Are there trends in spices? Is there like something new that's about, oh, to, for sure. about to really hit? Yeah. So uh, Yotam Adolenghi, who's a restaurateur and chef and cookbook author, I call it the Adolenghi effect. There's <laughs> definitely been a spike in Middle Eastern spices, particularly things like sumac, which is become one of our top sellers, black urfa chili, which is a particular variety of chili pepper from southern Turkey. It's cured in a way that's very similar to the the way that vanilla beans are dried and cured. So it's black and kind of chocolatey and has a lot of the same kind of sweet, fruity notes that vanilla has. I use that in my scrambled eggs all the time. It gives it sort of a nice meaty flavor. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. It is amazing. I'm going to leave and go to like Burlap and Barrels. <laughs> well, I should say, actually, what is your website? Burlapandbarrel.com. If you're listening to this right now and you're like, you know what, I really want that in my eggs tomorrow, I'll just go check it out. Yeah. If someone's, it's their first time buying spices at your store, what do you suggest? The cumin? Yeah, the cumin is great. We have a couple of collections on the site. Chef's Choice, which are my favorites, and then we have an Adventures collection and a Fundamentals collection, lots of different options. But I would say just buy a couple of things that feel like maybe you've used them before, you're a little bit familiar with them, or you know what? Buy something that's totally different. Even if you're buying spices in the grocery store or anywhere else, the most fun thing to do with spices is to experiment, is to add them to dishes that you already like to cook, that you already like to eat. And then you can really clearly see what's different. What flavor did this particular spice add to whatever you're cooking? Be experimental. Play around with them. They're really very, very low-risk way to make dinner more interesting. Yeah. And I have one last question. What the heck does a bay leaf do? This is a really good question, and a question that applies to a lot of spices where really? if they're old, if they've been sitting around for a while, which guaranteed supermarket spices have been sitting around for a long time, uh-huh. often years, they lose their flavor. So you don't really connect you don't taste the spice in whatever it is that you're cooking. And bay leaves in particular, a good bay leaf should smell like sage and rosemary. It should smell a little like green tea. There should be a real herbal. I do not smell like and, any of those things. Then I would suggest uh, maybe throwing <laughs> them away. Rush your bay leaves. Okay. <laughs> but a bay leaf adds a level of depth and complexity to a stock or a stew or anything cooking in liquid. They're great in rice. Mm. One of the ways that we support the co-ops and the farmers that we work with in Zanzibar, we have been harvesting the cinnamon tree leaves. So when you cut down a branch of the cinnamon tree to peel the cinnamon bark off of the branch, you have all these leaves attached to the branch, which historically have just been thrown away or left on the forest floor. But we've gotten the farmers to dry them and sell them to us. So something that they were not making any money off of before is now a new source of revenue for the co-op. If you cook with it like a bay leaf, where it has this really nice spiced cinnamon flavor without any of the sweetness that you would get from actual cinnamon bark. I just put them in rice. I make rice with a couple of cinnamon leaves, or they're great in steamed vegetables. Well, thank you so much for coming by and for telling us about your cool, uh, amazing life and job. For everyone who's listening, that's Burlap and Barrel is the name of the company, and the spices are great. We're all big fans here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey. 
Ezra, thank you for calling in this morning to talk to us about the car awards because that's your whole purview and I feel like you get to do all this really cool car stuff. And we also have Alex here, obviously, to kind of talk because do you actually do any of the car testing or is it all Ezra? A majority of my job is putting Oxford commas in Ezra's drafts that he sends in. So every once in a while I get to drive cars. But besides that, the awards thing was his doing. It's his writing that's in here and the cars that are in here, it's his stuff. And he really lives in this world and drives something new all the time. Alex did take one for the team and he did the McLaren 720S right up. Oh, yeah, I really tough. Had, that's hard. I yeah, you had to drive myself. a really fancy car. Yeah. yeah Let's not tough. forget that. And you were the stunt driver in the Tesla Model 3. That's right, yeah. In the photos, really? Yeah, yes. That was the original photos that we took for it. Is that the car of the year? Yeah. Okay. So first question, Ezra, you drive all these cars. How do you start? Do you make like a list, like a big master list? There are some cars that sort of get on your radar way early because you start hearing about them like the Kia Stinger. It wasn't a surprise. I kind of had some idea of what the Kia Stinger was going to be like because that was a big deal for them, and I'd been hearing about it for a long time. So I told them in advance, I want to get into one of these things and drive it because I think it might be something that might be eligible for an award. So we made that happen. And then other cars might drive over the course of a year, and you just have to kind of make a mental bookmark and say, I'm going to come back to this because this seems like it could fit in for this next year. Like the Land Rover Discovery I drove quite a while ago. So it came out around this time last year. So it was too late for the previous year's awards. But I was thinking, you know, this is pretty solid. So whatever else comes out between now and then, i got to revisit this. So you keep track of things over the course of the year and then keep an eye on what's coming out around the time of the awards and try to sort of synthesize it all at the end. Okay. That sounds kind of fun. I mean, I know you've been driving cars for a really long time, so you kind of probably have an idea. You know, I feel like if I were going to try to do this, I'd be like, this one has four seats, and that sounds good (laughs) to me. You know, like I just wouldn't know really what to do. That's kind of the challenge with a lot of these car models is that there's so many variations of each thing that you just have to sometimes pick one and go with it and explain that, yes, there are others, but this is what we're talking about here. Okay, so the car of the year is the Tesla Model 3. Why the Tesla now? So the Tesla Model 3 is a strangely controversial car. There are basically two camps of people in the world, it seems like. Those who think that Tesla is wonderful and then those who think that it's all a big scam. And I guess I'm somewhere in between. I try to take a rational view of the cars and where they fit in in the world. And my view of Tesla is that the cars aren't perfect, but they are forcing all the other car makers to do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. You know, Porsche would not be building an electric sedan were it not for the Model S pushing them. Jaguar probably wouldn't have an electric car at this point if they weren't trying to get in on some Model 3 sales. So I just approached the Model 3 with the question, is the biggest problem with this car that they can't build them fast enough? Because the line for them is 400,000 plus long, and they are famously having trouble ramping up their production to meet all this demand. Mm-hmm. And I concluded for the most part, yes, yeah, it is a great little car. And it's all about the price. For uh, a car that starts at less than $40,000, it's got a rear weight bias like a sports car. It's quick, zero to 60 in like five seconds. That sounds great. Any car yeah. that goes that fast, it makes getting onto a freeway a lot less stressful. Oh, it just sort of beams itself from place to place. And almost immediately, a guy in a Mercedes S-Class tried to race us, and I just dusted him on the West Side Highway until I backed off, and he went raging past at like 90 miles an hour. And, like, and then okay, the cop yeah, came. Yeah, 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 you won. You won. You won 90. <laughs> yeah. It was really impressive, and I was impressed to the point that I ordered one after that test. Really? I put my name on the reservation list, and perhaps I'll have a car in two years or maybe not. But <laughs> So you're putting your money where your mouth is. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I really am. And we'll see how that goes. 
I came away from it saying, I would like to have this car in my driveway. So how often do people try to race you? It depends on what kind of car I'm driving, but if I'm driving anything that looks like it should be raced, then usually someone will come up and try to instigate. (laughs) (laughs) I remember I dropped you off the airport when you came here, and we had the 570S. It was one of the first ones on the Northeast, and I remember we handed it over to you. We were driving on the highway, and just every Civic with an oversized spoiler, everybody comes up, and I was like, what compels us to do this? And you're like, you're the alpha on the road. Everybody kind of wants to get near you, see what's going on with you. They want to sniff your car butt? I think that's more or less what it's like. <laughs> Dog sniffing butts on the highway. Whether you gratify them or not is up to you. It requires some maturity and restraint, <laughs> and 85% of the time, that's what I have. <laughs> so one more question. I love trucks. What do you look for in a truck? Are you one of those people that's like, torque? Well, trucks are generally now so uniformly excellent and capable. But the thing I look for is having that massive ability that they all have. You know, if we're talking full-size trucks, they're all towing 10,000 pounds to 12,000 pounds. It's how gracefully they can do that. So, you know, most people are driving around their F-150 as their family car, essentially, and usually not hauling anything with it. So that's what I look for is how well it goes about its day-to-day business and really functions as an everyday car because they can all handle the truck stuff. They're all designed around that. And how well they handle the day-to-day, like, is there space under the rear seat to throw your stuff? How big is the center console? How comfortable are the seats and the ride? And, And certain companies, you know, they kind of go back and forth. But I feel like right now Ram is, they're the best at making their truck into something that you can almost forget as a truck. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. What are you most excited about to test next? Well, just the other day, I did have to give back the uh, Lamborghini Huracan Performante that I was testing. Alex just made a really jealous face. Oh, completely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was a good one. Maybe in the next podcast, we'll talk about Lamborghini's shortcomings with their fuel gauge readout and how one can easily be fooled into thinking there's a quarter tank when there's actually zero. Oh, no. When you run out of gas in a Lamborghini, you are quite a spectacle. But... (laughs) But the next thing I have coming up that I'm excited about is in a few weeks, the Ferrari GT4C Lusso T. I think I got all that right. It's a big mouthful of the name. But it's what used to be the Ferrari FF, the four-seat car. It used to be V12 and all-wheel drive. And now they've got a new model that's turbo V8 and rear-wheel drive. And so that bears revisiting. You know, when they put a different engine in, I better go see how that goes and try it out again. So I'm excited to take that car out. Awesome. Well, thank you. Listeners, this has been Ezra Dyer, who is our car editor and knows every damn thing about cars and has the most exciting life of anyone in our office. (laughs) Thanks, Ezra, for joining us. It's time again for your favorite segment with Eleanor. Axe Facts. Axe Facts. Is this A-X? I was just going to say, Peter, how would you spell the word Axe? I I would go in America, where I spell most words. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) A-X. You're wrong. AXE is British, you traitor. And you know what? We got a turncoat. This is an editor here. This is a professional editor. And also, copy editor. That's why I have copy editor. (laughs) Well, but I'm also a professional editor, and I also did not know that. Would you have put an E on it? Maybe. In fact, when I sent it to her, I said, Axfax, like AXE. And I was like, wait, is it AX? (laughs) And then she was like, you mean like the body spray? And I was like, I don't know the difference. (laughs) Oh, maybe that's why. Yeah. Technically, both are correct, but if you're a patriot, if you're a patriot, yeah. Is Axe body spray British? No, and the interesting thing is, in Britain, they call it Lynx. It's not called Axe. What? Like L-Y-N-X. L-Y-N-X, mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. Axe body spray. It's <laughs> 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 responsible for a lot of bad things that have happened to people. Hey, as I found they out. might be sponsors one day. 
Unlikely. We'll get links to sponsor us. <laughs> in 2016, in my dear hometown of Seattle, it was responsible for the evacuation of a church and a daycare center. What? Because of a noxious odor that was going off, and it was Axe body spray. What, was it like a 13-year-old boy that like didn't know how to apply Literally, cologne? yeah, in the bathroom. Same thing happened in Brooklyn in like 2013. Like eight kids were hospitalized. Wow. Yeah. From inhaling it. I think someone like probably got a little too aggressive with the Axe. And it Used was, it as mace? Yeah, I guess. Okay, I'm just going to tell a quick story here. My brother lives in Japan, so he's probably not listening to this podcast. You can get podcasts anywhere, Jack. It's true. Damn it. Uh, sorry, Joey. My brother was one of those teenagers, those preteens that like did not know how much cologne to apply. And he got really into, I think it was Aquadigio. Aquadigio or how you, however you say <laughs> that? Aquadigio. Is that how you say it? Aquadigio. I'm pretty sure. And he sprayed so much on that we would get in the car and I would just like want to throw up. It was terrible. I had to roll all the windows down. It was rough. He He's learned now. I don't think he wears cologne anymore. (laughs) I will say for your brother's sake, it's not like you spilled a secret there. He's from Florida. He is from Florida. (laughs) I kind of assumed he wore a lot of cologne. Yeah. Sorry, Axe Facts. Speaking of terrible regional trends, there's an axe throwing bar in Brooklyn. Of course there is. (laughs) You know who's been there? Who? Wait, we've been to the one in New Jersey. Oh, you didn't get to go to the... There's a new one in Brooklyn. It's called Kick Axe. Oh, that's a good one. What was the one we went to? It was called Stumpy's Hatchet House. That's right. That's that was, better. That's better. We think it's better. That was actually on this podcast. It was a Halloween episode, I want to say, two years ago. Ooh. So it's a little hard to hear because there's a lot of thwacking going on. But <laughs> Did yeah. you enjoy it? Is it like darts but bigger? It is. It's like darts but bigger. And I'm and really harder. bad at... Seems um, like it'd be harder. Yeah, it was a With little like harder. The physics of it. I'm really bad at anything I have to release. Anyone that listens to this podcast... <laughs> so any kind of throwing game? Yes, yes. I can throw a football and a ball. And that's it. If it is a dart or a frisbee, I will throw it on the ground. I, like, a, did you see me try to throw a paper airplane? I was made oh, fun yeah. of for at least yeah. like weeks, several you weeks. That. I know. That's what I'm saying. I can't do it. I don't know what's wrong with my hands. So I was very afraid that I was going to throw an axe directly into my foot and or shin. I feel like I need like shin guards, but I didn't. So I was okay. I mm-hmm. think that's what we should do for our next Christmas party. No more bowling. We that's should true. go throw that's axes. A good idea. I'm in. The people who come around and tell you how to perfect your throw. Experts. Brilliant. That's brilliant. I love a good portmanteau. I will close with a historical axe story for your enjoyment. Thank you. You're so welcome. (laughs) In the early 20th century, down in New Orleans, there was an axe murderer running around. As there tend to be back then. Yeah. He would break into people's houses and steal their axes that they were keeping around, I guess, to cut firewood or, you know, for whatever axe needs they had. And he would kill them with their own axes. But where the story gets interesting and very, like, New Orleans-y, he wrote a letter to the editor of the paper saying that he would spare anyone who played loud jazz music. Quote, I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. It's a Tuesday. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night will get the axe. Wow. That's brilliant. I mean, that's a really good way to get, like, the party going. Everyone's like, well, guess we're having a party on Tuesday. And also, so no one was axe murdered that night. Really? Yes, but he could have just been trying to see how many people would yeah. play jazz music. He that could have not he, even been there You at know all. what? He probably, I mean, knowing what I know of psychology of axe murders, <laughs> which is nothing. He could have been trying to see how influential he was. I mm-hmm. feel like that's the kind of the thing an axe murderer would want to know. Yeah. And that makes this a lot more like that other podcast. was my favorite murder. I feel like we're turning into like a murderer <laughs> podcast. All the good podcasts are. And that's been Axe Facts. Axe Facts. AX. <laughs> American Axe Facts. <laughs> <laughs>
So we have our technology and cars editor, Alex George, here. And he was talking about cars earlier on our podcast, but now he is here to talk about tech. For the most recent issue, you did how to block someone. Who are you trying to block? Have you gotten spam phone calls or like fake phone calls? Yes, I get a lot of them. And I screen them because my cell phone is still from where I went to college, which is Tallahassee, Florida, go Florida mm-hmm. State. So all those calls are 850. And I don't know anyone else who has that number anymore. I've lived in New York City for 11 years. So I just, if I see 850, I'm like, nope, yeah. <laughs> thanks. The semi-recent phenomenon is called neighbor spoofing. And oh. what these companies will do is take your area code and maybe even the second three numbers and then tweak the last four. The idea being convince you that it's your mechanic or someone from your neighborhood or uh-huh. your school or something like that Sneaky. and get you to pick up and confirm that there's you know a person at the other end of that number. So that's kind of why you're ending up with these phone calls like that. And the frustrating thing with all these fake telemarketing and you, know, you just want a vacation to the Bahamas, those kinds of things, yeah. is that there's rules about how phone numbers and phone calls are regulated that it's very difficult to block something or to completely eliminate calls from unknown phone numbers, basically. So okay. I did a little bit of digging and kind of found some workarounds, but it's this really annoying phenomenon that I really hope goes away pretty soon. Okay. So what do you actually do if this starts happening to you? So this basically starts a friend told me about a crazy ex that they had that was, you know, just calling and texting. And he's like, I don't know how you get rid of it. And so we talked on iPhones, Android devices. If you have a number, hit the info button next to it. You can just like block this caller and it won't show up again on your phone. So that's a one number. But it doesn't work for these neighbor spoofing numbers where it's coming from a different source every single time and it's unrecognizable, that kind of thing. Some phone companies do this automatically where I have T-Mobile and they'll say scam likely if it sees the number. Mm -hmm. can read it that way. The other way, a preemptive measure is, you know, every time you try and buy something from a drugstore or buy khakis or whatever, they ask you for your phone number. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do it. I'm always like, sure, why not? (laughs) Yeah, because it's more like in the same way that our email addresses are our login for everything. Yeah. And now we have spam email, even sales announcements, that kind of thing. The phone number is kind of getting sent out all over the internet in the same way that is. So what I do, if I don't want to be rude, I'll give them my phone number, but with the last two digits changed. Oh, so it's like when you're a hot girl at the club and you don't want to give out your real number. It's difficult because creating an account for Uber or Lyft or whatever, you had to give them your email, go into your email, confirm the email, make your password and all that. A lot of what these do now is take your phone number and then text you a confirmation code. Mm -hmm. And then that's how you set up, which makes it so much easier, but it means that your phone number gets used for a whole lot of stuff now. Right. Two-factor identification often uses your phone number. Totally, yeah. Yeah. That stuff I'm not too worried about, but you can't buy something from Dwayne Reed without giving over your phone number if you have a membership or something like that. I think that's something that I would give up the 30 cents savings or something like that to try and avoid doing Another solution, obviously, is move because that's worked for me. Move far away from your area code. Or can you like go on vacation, get a phone somewhere, and then just have that area code? Oh, like change your number like that? Yeah, because I mean like Hmm. it really is helpful for me. I don't really have a problem because I just don't know anyone anymore who lives where I went to college. Right. With the exception of one or two college friends who are already in my phone, no one is calling me from Tallahassee, Florida. So if I see that number, I just hit no. One alternative I found is, so there's a free service called Google Voice. It's been out for a while now. You sign up, you have to have a Google account, which is, you know, maybe its own set of problems there with advertising, but you get assigned basically a number. You can get one with your same area code of whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And it's this just basically a second line that you can access on your phone or through online or whatever. And use that as a something like if you were to have an email address that you use for all your logins. Or like a trash line. Basically, yeah. You okay. can use it that way. That's one way that I think is really effective for that as well. 
Because right now, the phone numbers just get thrown out into the world way too often, I think. Right. If your number is already polluted, are there any solutions for that? So the kind of nuclear option that, at least for me, is not enough of an issue. If you mostly receive phone calls and texts from known numbers, one way to go is most phones have this setting where you can say only receive calls from favorites or from known uh, contacts. Uh-huh. The iPhone has this where, you know, if you go to your text messages, there'll be a tab on the left that says like iMessage, uh, known senders, basically. And mm-hmm. then the other one will be unknown senders. And that's where if you're just getting bombarded with offers to buy some cheap Chinese watch or something like that. Uh-huh. They'll just automatically go there and you won't get your phone buzzing. But you could miss calls that way, maybe. So you have that little section where you can check and see if, Uh I don't know, somebody from the work whose phone number you don't have is texting you. You can find it that way. That's a pretty practical solution for anybody who doesn't really have to deal with getting calls from unrecognized numbers. Right. Well, thanks for talking about this. Okay, so it's the end of the day, and you can tell because Peter Martin is flinging ice against the wall and trying, to get, it, trying to get it a trash can with a bar both. spoon. So the reason we are all here, it's Peter and Kevin and Lara and I. This is like the whole podcast Uber crew. staff right now. It's true. Yeah. The reason we're all here is that we recently did a Getting Started in Cocktails package and have all these bar spoons and booze in the office, as well as kind of crappy ice we were just lamenting. And Jackie's going to teach us how to How to how stir to a cocktail. To stir. Yeah. So we have a teardrop bar spoon from Cocktail Kingdom, which is where you can get a lot of cool bar stuff. And the way to hold it is kind of like a pencil, but between your middle and ring finger. Even this one? I have the funky one with the, the, the spinnable handle. So you have the OXO spinning bar spoon, which is like a bar spoon for people who can't handle stirring the real way. Ow. <laughs> so you hold it like this. I'm going to give it to Peter. You can try it. Hold it between your, like, Spock. Yeah, like Spocky. Okay. Okay. Yes. Do I, do I roll with my thumb? You do roll it with your thumb. Oh, natural. Yeah, wow. you are. So basically what you do, put some ice in there and put some <laughs> booze in it. It's a lot easier with ice. It's a lot easier with, like, a big old piece of ice. And your choice of booze, because we've got lots. You want to try is that? Is that bottled mint julep? It is, yeah. Matt Allen put it behind my desk. I don't know if we're supposed to drink it, but... Well, he's not but, here to oh, say yeah. it. It was in the bar section, so... Which is the one drink you might find on this kind of crappy ice. That's true, actually. Yeah, this is really... So what were you calling it, Lara? You know what kind of ice this is called? Nugget ice. Nugget ice. That's yeah. like the worst. And if you're going to be making mint juleps, you can stir your drink. Soon, right? Yeah. When is the Kentucky Derby? <laughs> we really do a lot of prep I for know. This. We're, well, look, it's the end of the day, and we're all surrounded by booze. Let's see how quickly I can bing it. Saturday, May 5th. Saturday, May 5th. <laughs> Not working. We just look no, no. like we've never held spoons before. <laughs> you guys before. are cracking me up right now. So the spoon is just spinning in the center of my drink. That is not how okay. I've seen it done so before. The, I'm going to take Kevin's while he pours. Yeah, you try it with the real one. The idea is you work. use your thumb <laughs> Sorry, and the pattern of the swirl to keep the back... Yeah. Oh, against Keep the, the outside back against of the, glass. the outside. It's like I was saying, it's a lot easier if you have one big Ooh, piece of ice. That makes sense because now it's cutting through the ice instead of being stuck around it. Right. Oh, wait. What if you just totally. Because <laughs> if you, you can spin <laughs> back and forth or you can rotate the whole way around. Yeah. That's a much slower process. But if I spin it back and forth, like you're rolling something between your thumb and your first two fingers. Yeah. You really want to spin it all the way around the outside of the glass like that. Yeah. Okay. It's spinning. 
Yeah. Can you show us how to do it right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's see how here. good I am at it. So the idea is that you do this. Oh, you're moving your wrist too. I was just yeah. spinning. That's basically what you're doing. better at it. <laughs> so you spin. I guess you move your wrist and you do this like kind of like open close hand thing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to describe. I was like, I can do it, but I can't explain it. So that's the gist of it. Is you just Kevin's you, got it. So the idea of that bar spoon, what you want to do with that one it's is you like can starting a fire. Uh, Ooh. Just hold it regularly at the top, and it will do it itself. Oh, See that? Okay. Like so that is doing it. Look how Kevin's doing it, Peter. Man, I, but I don't have an automatic spinner. Mine looks pretty good, too. <laughs> I have an automatic spinner. I'll trade you. <laughs> look, at how my, look how fast. Oh, you're doing look good. Look at the vortex. You're doing good. So that's what you, you kind of yes. want a little vortex thing going. All right. So why why are you supposed to do it that way? Or is it just for fancy? It's uh, easy if you shake it. People don't like that. Yeah, I think the idea, I mean, these drinks are going to get hazy anyway because this ice is so bad. Dave Arnold, who's like the father of fancy cocktails, came into the office one time and was so mad about our ice. He was like, really, really? You're subjecting me to this ice? But he's nice otherwise. It does because it instantly melts and waters down. And it waters down. I don't understand why anyone wants nugget ice. I'm sorry. This is a side conversation. (laughs) Tell us about why you stir it that way. To chew, I think Kevin said he likes to chew the nugget ice. Yeah. And it's great in soda. He's a known ice Good surface area, quick cooling. Good for water, although it disappears. If somebody had heat stroke, that's the kind of ice you would want. Maybe. I don't know. I have no idea. So I think the idea of stirring it like that is we could look it up maybe, but I assume that it's so that you can water down the drink without clouding it. You can use like a big old piece of ice and control exactly how watered down you make it, I think. Also, if you do have a big piece of ice, like you can't stir it any other way, really. Right. The first fancy cocktail bar I went to, they'd always cut the ice right in front of you off of a big block and they would purposely make it too big so that as they stirred it, it would slowly lower down to the bottom of the glass, which I always felt was a nice bit of showmanship. Ooh, that's cool. Isn't there a number of times you're supposed to stir a drink? There is. It depends on the drink and I should know that. Have I ever mentioned on here that I used to work at Pegu Club? It's like a fancy cocktail bar that Peter Martin is going to tonight. I was not a bartender. I was a cocktail waitress but we had to learn all the stuff there so I should know this. It's a really good drink I made for myself by putting booze and ice. (laughs) What do you call it? Ice bourbon? Colder bourbon. I want to say it's about 30 but I feel like people are really particular about it. We should ask Dave Wondrich. We should ask Dave Wondrich. Who Just a cocktail historian mm. and also a professor of literature. And then he just is one of the most renowned booze historians. All right. Everybody's so I'm seeing got their stir passions. for about 60 seconds. I really feel like I heard, I want to say 33. I was thinking in the 30s. Yeah. I feel like I learned 33, but that is, you know. The thing is, if you're making these at home and you're not a professional bartender. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Then just stick a regular chopstick in there and slosh it around. You know, do what you do, man. <laughs> I think just stir it. Make enough of them till you know how watered down you want your drink. It also depends on the ice. But 33 is a reasonable, reasonable yeah. If you stir nugget ice 33 times, there's just no ice left. You're just, out of control. You step water. Control. Oh, then you have what Peter has right now, which is like a, a slushy. So far, it's pretty good. Bourbon slushy. Yeah. Peter likes a bourbon slushy. So that's how you stir a drink. Thanks, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> For this week's testing table, we thought we would ask Roy what he's been doing because I hear it's adorable. Yeah, <laughs> adorable. It's rare that you get to say that about tool tests, but... Yeah, somebody might think it's adorable. I think it's adorable. Okay, well, I'll take that. Folks out there in podcast land, I wish you could see these. These are stubby screwdrivers, otherwise known as stubbies in the trade. They're so cute. This is the one I have. It looks like something you'd buy and like put on your desk as a toy. Like yeah, it needs a little face on it. Yeah, almost like a Christmas ornament. Uh, is this like three inches tall? Not even. Yeah. Yeah. yeah two yeah. and a half. Yeah. And it's got a fat little handle and then it's a screwdriver. 
Yeah, that's the German-made Viha, spelled W-I-H-A. Their tools are very well made, for one thing, but also they pay close attention to the ergonomics. Like, you see how stubby it is, right? Mm-hmm. But you see how but much But you can power. grab it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody needs at least a couple of stubby screwdrivers in their toolkit. A flathead and a Phillips head? Yeah, I mean, like a number two Phillips is a good choice. Wait, there's different kinds of Phillips heads? Yeah, they're numbered. Based on how big their little plus sign is? Yes, exactly. But as you can see, they're short. Uh They have stout handles for a good grip. And, you know, the short length just helps you get in there. So, yeah, what do you use these for? Well, they're used in several things. I mean, they're great screwdrivers overall. Mm-hmm. You can see that the short grip, the short handle length helps you see how you can grip it various ways like this. Oh, yeah, with like two fingers over the very end of it. Right. Oh, yeah, that's a cool like, idea. And then you can turn it like you would conventionally. But the whole thing is that the short length of the screwdriver helps you get into tight spots. You know, uh-huh. something where a full length shaft screwdriver will not fit. And it's very frustrating. It happens all over the place in automotive service, mm-hmm. appliances. Sometimes like locksmithing and so on, hinges, you know, you've got to get the screwdriver in the door. It's open. You can't get it the hinge screw. So, yeah, I keep, I don't know, half a dozen different sizes in my tool. You have like eight of them over there. How many do you have over there? I have a box full, dozens They're of so them. They're so cute. I like that little one that it looks like a jewel. And this is it's a good American make. That's ideal. Ideal company. They make them right here in the U.S. Uh-huh. That design has been around since 1960s, something like that. Not quite as ergonomic as this Weha, though. So which one of these won in your estimation? And also, wait, before I ask you that, how do you test stubby screwdrivers? Well, we drove and removed a lot of screws. In tight places? Yes, exactly. That's the only way you can really test them. I mean, this is our winner. Craftsman is a good old American brand. They are not a manufacturer. They have a range of manufacturers make stuff to their specification. Oh, but it's light. Yeah, it's light. It's a very stubby blade, but the handle really is huge. Yeah, it's huge. And yeah. you can really twist with that. It's very comfortable. It's like a two-third size bike handle almost. Yeah, almost. And that's the thing. Just because, it's, obviously, you know, a screw may be in a tight spot somewhere. You know, it could be a big screw in a small, in a tight, whatever, you know, on a piece of furniture, electrical, car or something. And you've got to crank that sucker out of there, you know. Yeah. This is less cute than the other ones. Uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, lacking in the cute factor. So don't get this as a present for someone who really likes cute screwdrivers. Yeah, no, they'll be disappointed. The industrial <laughs> black and gray. But you'll notice that the tip of it feels kind of rough. It does. Yeah, it feels... What is that? Yeah, it's industrial diamond grit, powderized wow. diamond that's embedded and plated onto the tip. It reminds me of... My mom had a diamond nail file when I was a kid. Yeah, well, that's exactly the same edge craft corporation is famous for its planing on diamond particles onto files Mm -hmm. and so forth and they have this cool hybrid file they're one of several well-known manufacturers but the point is it's a very abrasive resistant and it cuts slightly so you're not going to strip screws yeah i mean it's especially handy if that screw is stubborn you know Uh it's in there it may be rusted in it may be semi-stripped 
So the big handle was an asset. It's very well made. Unfortunately, it's not American made, but still, it's a good product. It's well priced. The ergonomics are excellent. And so that took best overall in the stubby screwdriver shootout. Is that what it was called? The stubby screwdriver shootout? Well, I should have. Yeah. I mean, we didn't think we played it straight. <laughs> Boss was like, yeah, no, good try. Yeah, good try, right? <laughs> we, we appreciate you trying to, well, you know, and look, in my neck of the woods where it's all rusty hardware, pipes and concrete and stuff like that. <laughs> you got to have the farm where you can get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not many opportunities for that, you know. So anyway, it was a fun test. I learned a lot. Did you only test the Phillips heads? Well, to keep it consistent, yeah. I mean, they're multi-bit, there are ratcheting, there's any number of these things. They're available in straight. There are other types, too, Torx, you know, and, and square drive and you name it, especially with the industrial brands to suit your application. We had fun with it. We just liked that it's a different screwdriver, and we had never tested them, you know. I mean, I've been testing tools for a long time, and I had somehow managed to overlook. Well, they're the, small, so. Right, they're small, easy, easy to miss, to you know, right? Yeah. If it had dropped in your bowl of soup, you may not even know it was there. <laughs> I hope you, you would know. notice it was there. Crunch. So as we end this all the time, would you buy one of these? Would you buy a Craftsman? Oh, absolutely. Well, I own, yeah, sure. You're I like, own. I own lots of these. Actually. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I don't own Craftsman stubbies, but I do own a lot of Craftsman tools. But I'm just saying, you know, that did prove out that particular driver was not available when I bought my stubbies, ah. you know, years ago. But yeah, you know, don't try to repair an appliance without having at least a couple of stubbies in your toolkit. That's our show, y'all. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks of all sorts, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics Magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.